Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses um, 6 through 10 tonight, with the focus being on 8, really, ultimately, but um, at any rate, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. So hear now God's holy word. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen. So we come to the third of the faithful sayings as we've I've been reflecting on those from time to time. Uh, There's just kind of generally to connect you with some of the other faithful sayings. uh, This is one of the two faithful sayings where the marker, the phrase, this is a faithful saying, comes after the faithful saying. There's two of them like that. This is one of them here. It comes, the marker comes in verse nine, but the saying is really, well, eight, maybe the last half of seven and eight. That's the faithful saying, but Paul tells us that's the faithful saying after he's already told it to us. The other one is uh, historically the next one, although if we do Second Timothy first, we'll cover it. Anyway, Titus, uh, Titus chapter three, verse eight, says... Uh, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who are who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So the faithful saying came before that, but then there that's the announcement that it was a faithful saying. Uh, in addition, this is one of the two faithful sayings that has the added phrase, and worthy of all acceptance. You see that in verse 9. And if we go back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, uh, here's the announcement of the first faithful saying. Uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So this faithful saying we're looking at tonight is has a little bit of uniqueness uh, in those two ways, um, the other um, faithful sayings come, one in this book, uh, the grace, if you pursue the office of an elder, and then in Second Timothy, grace of God's faithfulness. And the problem is that some are departing from the faith. We encountered that last week and earlier here in, in uh, chapter 4. They're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And so I want to get the flow a little bit of, of what's been being told to us in this book 
to get us to see the, the point that we're at a, at a, a point of choosing in this faithful saying, uh, that we're, we're being confronted with tonight. But Paul has been dealing with this issue that some are walking away and departing from the faith. And now he's going to give us a faithful saying to tell us what do we do uh, to keep ourselves from happening. So turn back to chapter 1 and um, looking at verses uh, 3 through 7 of chapter 1, 3 through 7. Says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So here, Paul is urging Timothy, you know, to to tell those who are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies to quit and to quit teaching false doctrine. In part, the problem they were doing is a misuse of the law. That was part of, they were going aside to these myths, but they were also misusing the law, misusing the Old Testament. So if you look at verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so these people that are going away to myths and endless genealogies are misusing the Old Testament. They're not using it lawfully. They're not using it properly. And so at the very end of chapter 1, we have Paul coming back to Timothy about himself. And in verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul is setting up this contrast woven through this book, uh, that there are those who are wandering away uh, there are those who are devoting themselves to these falsehoods, misusing Scripture, and there's going to be a different challenge that he's giving to giving to us in this particular uh, faithful saying. And so to come back to chapter 4, it's what we looked at last time in the early verses, uh, that there are those in verse uh, 1 who depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And their teaching that was false was they forbid marriage and the uh, required the abstinence from certain foods. In contrast, Paul tells them that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving for those who believe and know the truth. So all this contrast is being built up to this point here in chapter 4. And it begins in verse 6, which we looked at kind of as a conclusion to the first part. 
but it also anticipates this faithful saying. Because in verse 7, verse 6, excuse me, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And note this, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Timothy himself needs to train. And this is what the faithful saying is going to all be all about is training, disciplining ourselves, exercising ourselves for that which is right and proper. And, um, and so when we come to verse seven, we see the kind of the prelude to the faithful saying, uh, in contrast, uh, to this is the faithful saying is going to be in contrast to this. The first part of verse seven is a uh, kind of a prelude to this. Uh, first, verse seven, the beginning says, "Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths." So he rehearses that basic point. You need to stay away from falsehood. Have nothing to do uh, with these irreverent, silly myths. So that's what we're to say no to. The Bible has this pattern over and over, particularly in Paul. There's things we say no to, and then there's things we say yes to. <clears throat> so we're to say no to irreverent and silly myths. What are we to say yes to? Well, the what we say yes to, rather, the contrast, the choice, rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And the um, contrast or the, the faithful saying, uh, some would argue the last part of verse 7 isn't part of the faithful saying, but it forms a really good introduction to it even if it's not. But the faithful saying is, in contrast to what you avoid, uh, irreverent and silly myths, what are you to do? Uh, you are to train yourself for godliness. There's the exhortation, the beginning of the faithful saying. The word for training, you can kind of even hear it in the Greek word, gumadze. It's the word for gymnasium. And it's the idea that you exercise yourself, you put yourself in training, to accomplish a certain thing. So uh, Paul is telling Timothy, get in your spiritual gym and start exercising yourself, training yourself uh, not to get stronger muscles. Nothing wrong with uh, going to the gym and having physical exercise, but this that's not the point that he's drawing attention to. He wants you to get to the spiritual gym and train yourself for godliness. Uh, it's, it takes exercise. It would be really nice if we could pray, Lord, make me godly, and wow, zap, you're there. But you know what God's response to that prayer would be, or and is, if you say pray to God, God, make me godly, what he's going to do is he's going to say, uh, okay, your, your car is a flat tire. There's your training. Get busy. Um, there's somebody at work who is a pain in the neck. 
There's your gym. Get busy. Get to work. You pray, God, make me godly. And what he does is he puts you in situations. He gives you tools, but he puts you in situations where you have to put it into practice, where you have to exercise those spiritual muscles. You have to read the Bible. God, help me to understand your word. But we never, but you don't open it. Well, he would say, open it. Read the, read it. Exercise yourself. Apply yourself to it. Lord, teach me to pray. Well, then get about the business of praying. That's how you learn how to pray by praying. Uh, And you don't get an answer to prayer just sitting there. You have to exercise yourself for these things. Um, the, the aspect of discipline for godliness is so, uh, convicting. Jay Adams has a, uh, wonderful little, I say wonderful, but it's really a convicting book. Um, and it's a title is Godliness Through Discipline. We kind of wish there was another way, something easier, but there isn't any easier path <clears throat> to that. And here's, the training you have to do and the faithful saying is going to give you some motivation and reasons why you need to train yourself for godliness. But uh, turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. Here we have the tool for our training. It's a very familiar verse, a couple verses. So 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, man of God could have reference perhaps to a particular office, but it's more likely uh, the person of God, the child of God, the Christian. Uh, We have to use God's word in these four ways to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us. One uh, seminary professor I had, he used the illustration in those words. Of course, we're being taught, we're being set upright with teaching. Then we're reproved when we go wrong, and that's the word of God knocks us down and gets us on the ground, on our knees, because of what we've done wrong, then it corrects us, it puts us back upward again, and then it trains us for righteousness. It's the active pursuit of righteousness in our life, and the Word of God is, is true in all those ways. And if you've been a Christian any time at all, you know uh, that's exactly what's happened in your life. Uh, the Word of God will put you on a good path, but you'll start to waver from it, and so the Word of God will come over and it'll knock you over. It'll tell you you're not on the path. And in repentance, then the Word of God will set you back up, put you on the path again, and you pursue the training in righteousness. And that's the Word of God is your resource, your tool, to help you in your training. Uh, just as you might train rigorous, rig- rigorously and faithfully in an athletic endeavor, several of our young people here, you know, they've been in athletics and 
they practice and they train and they go to practices and and they make a great deal of effort and that's a good thing to get better at whatever sport they're in or whatever skill they're trying to accomplish. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But just as you would pursue training vigorously in any particular uh, athletic event or any particular venture or skill that you're trying to learn, you, you have to do the same effort and the same pursuit for godliness. If you want to be a good cook, you have to practice. You have to work hard at it. You have to study it. You have to think about it. <clears throat> you have to be taught by somebody. You have to keep at it. Any skill. And you and I need to refuse irreverent and foolish myths and train ourselves for godliness. And uh, before we go on next to the motivation, turn to Titus 2. Uh, just a follow-up of this pursuit. Titus 2, verse 11 It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the grace of God appears, and it tells us we've got to say no to certain things, and then we have to pursue godliness in this present age. So we come back to 1 Timothy 4 and look at verse 8 in particular. A motivation and direction for why we are to do this. It says, uh, for bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And that first phrase is really, uh, literally, bo- uh, uh, bodily training or physical training is profits little. And there's two ways of looking at that particular phrase. One is, well, the way the SV translates it, is that if you have bodily exercise, you get a little benefit from it. Um, the other way to look at it is uh, bodily exercise uh, doesn't profit much, more minimizing it, not focusing on the little bit that you do get from it, but saying, well, it really doesn't help you all that much. But either way you take it, the idea is the contrast. The point of this faithful saying is the contrast. Uh, Bodily exercise is of some value, but... Godliness is a value in every way. <clears throat> and he, Paul is putting together, putting before us there this contrast. We have to make a choice. Which are we going to pursue? We're going to pursue that which gives us a little bit or that which is of great value. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Here, Paul makes a similar <clears throat> contrast in the world of exercise and godliness. 1 
So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. So it's a recognition that in the athletic events, they win a prize, but it's a prize that's going to fade. Uh, Godliness is going to give us a prize that will last forever. Gordon Clark has some interesting comments. Uh, He writes, It makes much better sense to suppose that Paul is contrasting the stupidity of the athlete, you know, there's nothing, something about Gordon Clark. He doesn't, he never minces words. And just wait till you hear what the rest of it has to say. Um, that, that, that Paul is contrasting the stupidity of the athletes in training so strenuously for a prize worth nothing and the wisdom of Christians who values, whose values are sound. Today, of course, they do not give the Olympians a few laurel leaves. They give them gold medals at a present price of some $400 an ounce. That was in 1983. Even so, the gold is not of sufficient worth to justify months and years of training. Even aside from the drugs they take to pep them up and the medication used to desex the women contestants and turn them into the masculine freaks. See, he doesn't mince words, does he? You, You had to hear that. I had I just had to read that to you. But anyway, he continues, The athletes have chosen the wrong values and lead wasted lives. Godliness or piety, on the other hand, is profitable in relation to every aspect of life, both now and forever. Now, he may be a little severe on the benefit of athletics, but nevertheless, <clears throat> he's underscoring an important point, and that is there is uh, a limited value to... Exercise, and, and we're not, I'm not making a case against, uh, healthy exercise. That's beneficial. We need that. Our bodies need that. Nothing wrong with that. But the contrast Paul's making is that benefits us a little bit, but godliness benefits us not only now in this life, and it does benefit us in this life, but it benefits us <clears throat> in the life to come. It's a far greater value, the discipline of godliness, and that's the thing he's urging us to pursue. It has a benefit now, in the present life, and in the life to come. And it's a significant choice that Paul is urging upon us here, <clears throat> the pursuit of something temporary or the pursuit of something permanent. And you and I make those kinds of choices all the time. All the time. Uh, we, uh, the choice of what we use with our time and our energies and our interests and our values, we make that choice all the time. What are we going to choose? That which is maybe even enjoyable and beneficial, nothing wrong with it, 
but as temporary? Or are we going to pursue also things of eternal value? Uh, John Calvin writes in reflecting on this, it's a very great consolation that God does not wish the godly to be in want of anything. For having made, having made our perfection to consist in godliness, he now makes it the perfection of all happiness. As it is the beginning of happiness in this life, so he likewise extends to it the promise of divine grace, which alone makes us, makes us happy and without which we are very miserable. For God testifies that even in this life, he will be our father. Let us remember to distinguish between the good things of the present and of the future. For God bestows kindness on us in this world in order that he may give us only a taste of his goodness. And by such a taste, he may allure us to the desire of heavenly benefits that in them we may find satisfaction. God gives us good things not to distract us from the path, but to allure us, to draw us to the chief goodness of him and and his uh, glory. Jonah, when he was in the fish, said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. If we devote ourselves to the idols of this world, we lose out on that which is lasting. Uh, Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There are many choices in this world, and this faithful saying in the Verse 9 is uh, following that up, saying, this faithful saying is worthy of all acceptance. In the beginning of verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. This is the pursuit we're to be a part of. Uh, This is what we're to aim at and so God has placed before you two paths, the paths of, of those things which may be good but not lasting, and the path of that which is everlasting. And the encouragement of Paul in this faithful saying is to make the choice for that which benefits you in life now and in the age to come. May we make that choice for our lives. Amen. Let us pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the exhortations and the help of your word and how you are faithful to draw our attention to the calling we have. <clears throat> May we make the right choice to pursue um, the training for godliness, which we know will benefit us not only in this life, but in the life to come. Thank you for the wonderful blessings of the life we have right now and the the good things we can enjoy, may they be uh, an invitation and allurement to to pursue the uh, eternal things that you have laid up for us in uh, in your presence forevermore. Help us, O Lord, day by day to discipline ourselves for godliness, and thus may you be glorified in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.